0: You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast.
1: Jets GM Joe Douglas says that they like Sam Darnold, but they're going to listen to offers and it leads to all kinds of speculation. But no matter how much speculation there is, one thing is clear. Sam Darnold should absolutely be the starting quarterback of the New York Jets next football season. It's Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz fine solo tonight. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our callers are joining us on the Goodyear hotline. Sarah getting a little vacation time in and we're gonna spend the next couple hours breaking down a lot of NBA action, a lot of NFL news, but the biggest thing on everybody's mind right now comes back to quarterbacks. Now, we knew this was going to be the year of quarterback chaos. We've all been talking about it. We've been doing features on it on Spain and Fitz as we get different experts to analyze different situations across the league. But the Jets are one of the more curious situations because they're sitting with the quarterback in Sam Darnold that everybody thought at one point was going to be the future. And now nobody knows exactly where the organization stands. You've got new coaching. You've got new regime. You've got a new mindset around a team that has a lot of draft equity and a team that's picking incredibly high in the draft. So the question is going to be, What are they going to do? GM Joe Douglas said, I will answer the call if it's made today in a press conference talking about whether or not he would listen to any offers for the number two pick overall. And obviously this runs back to everybody's want for Deshaun Watson to suddenly end up in New York. Now, that's an easy thing to put together, but it's not that simple. I mean, you're looking at a situation when you start talking about the quarterback position, you start talking about repeating history. That's what everybody's doing. At some point, everybody continues to deep dive into the same pool, trying to figure out a way to make it work. I'll go back to something that Field Yates tweeted out a couple of weeks ago. With the trade of Carson Wentz, there will now not be a single quarterback drafted in the first round from 2009 to 16 that's still with his original team. 0 for 22. So what does it mean to have the second pick in the draft? It means that realistically you're going to roll the dice. And that's all anybody's doing this year is they're rolling the dice to see if they've got the guy. This is what happens when you're not picking first overall and you don't get Trevor Lawrence. So what do you do if you're the Jets? Well, the responsible thing to do is to listen to offers. The responsible thing to do is to take phone calls, Houston. The responsible thing to do is at least see what other teams have to offer. But the responsible thing to do when all's said and done is to keep Sam Darnold. I'll tell you why, but first, I want you to hear what Rich Cimini, the uh, ESPN NFL Nation Jets reporter, had to say about how he feels with all of the uh, uncertainty around Darnold's future.
2: What stood out is just how uncertain Sam Darnold's future is with the Jets. Now, for some perspective, let's go back to the fall of 2019 at the trading deadline. Joe Douglas called Sam Darnold the franchise-type quarterback, and he basically said at that time that he was untouchable. Well, clearly, he's very touchable now. The Jets are willing to listen to offers. They haven't committed to Darnold, and there's a very attractive group of passers at the top of the draft next month. The way I read it today was that the Jets are very prepared to move on from Sam Darnold.
1: Well, and they might be, but realistically, you've got to look at it and say, for what? I mean, if they move on from Sam Darnold, what are they going to do? They're going to trade Sam Darnold somewhere, and then they're going to sit there and take a quarterback with the second overall pick? I mean, is that their intent? They're going to roll the dice on Justin Fields or Zach Wilson? Look, I'll say it again. There is one quarterback. If I ran an NFL franchise today and you said, hey, your ability to feed your family is going to depend on this one draft. pick," Because when you're picking second overall and you take a quarterback, that's what's on the line. Trevor Lawrence, worth that risk. Everybody else, you can raise a question about. And let's not at least forget the fact that the Jets roster top to bottom is in need of massive overhaul. They have a lot of money this year going in. They have a lot of cap space available, and the presumption is with a lot of draft picks coming over the next several years that the Jets have put themselves in a situation to rebuild and to rebuild quickly. They put themselves in a situation to become great. But I don't care who you put at quarterback. That was a four-win team last year. I don't care if Patrick Mahomes was the quarterback of the Jets last year. They still win four games. So at some point, what are you trying to get? you got to get a whole roster there. And that's why it's important to look back at some of the recent draft history. ESPN NFL draft analyst Matt Miller was on Barton Hahn, and he reminded everybody of one specific team that the Jets could be a lot like depending on how they handle draft day.
2: I don't think that it would be a mistake. I do think that the fans would revolt. But <laughs> So I look at it this. I do think Sam Darnold is fixable. Now, he may never live up to what we all thought he was going to be coming out of USC, right? That's, that's a different conversation. You have, Forget those expectations. But is he fixable to where he can become a good, a playoff caliber quarterback? I do think so. The Jets have to weigh Sam Darnold against this quarterback class, and they have to weigh the value of the number two overall pick against the value of Sam Darnold.
1: And that's so much of it. The value of the number two overall pick against the value of Sam Darnold. And Matt also talked about the Colts and how the Colts basically went in and rebuilt everything, their entire roster. And then they sat with so many draft picks. At that point, they could turn around and use those draft picks on players that other teams needed to get rid of DeForest Buckner. Right. So you think about what draft capital gives you in the future for the Jets right now. They've got to answer a question of what they're trying to accomplish short term and long term. And this is where there's always sort of a disconnect for organizations. It's part of the reason that I support long-term contracts for new GMs and new coaches. Part of the reason I support that is because you need guys to know, hey, you're going to get five or six years to build this. You're going to get the time you need. Because if your thought process is, hey, I'm coaching the Jets now. And I want to come in, and
0: I want a new quarterback, because that new quarterback is... You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast.
1: Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. Sarah Spain getting some much-deserved vacation for the rest of the week. But I'll be with you, hanging out every single night. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be having a good time. By the way, it's Women's History Month, and you'll notice across the landscape of our show, we're doing uh, some cool things. You're going to hear from a lot of uh, female guests, some of our favorite voices that are women across sports you'll hear from, so, uh, and that will continue tonight. So stay tuned for some of that. Uh, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. Now, one of the biggest conversations that seems to have legs for some reason right now is changing the NBA logo. Now, remember, Kyrie came out last week and said that he thinks the logo should be changed to Kobe. We talked about it briefly on Spain and Fitz at the time, and uh, I'm not sure there are a lot of people in the world that are bigger fans of uh, Kobe the player than I was and a huge influence to me in so many ways in life. That being said, I don't think that there's a great argument for changing the logo in the first place, but secondly, if you are going to change it, is Kobe more identifiable to the entire world when you think of basketball for generations than, I don't know, like Michael? You know, it, this is pretty simple to me. There, there's one, you know, icon of the NBA that stands above the rest. Whether we want to have a greatest of all time debate or just iconic of all time debate, it's Michael. So to me, if we're going to have a discussion about changing the NBA logo, it would be let's change it to Michael Jordan. So that being said, it does at least raise an interesting conversation I heard this morning on Keyshawn J. Will and Zubin, KJ and Z, the morning show, as they were talking about what would it look like for an NFL logo. We wanted to have one player that represented the NFL and would encompass the entirety of the sport. Who would it be? So this was their thought on how to uh, create an NFL logo.
3: It would be Jim Brown for me. I, I think everything that he embodied as a player, the, what he st- stood for in, in the social and just and early on now. We're talking – we talking we was not even thought of. Mm-hmm. All, all of those sort of things. And from an iconic standpoint, he's larger than life, man. Really in the football world. I mean, Jim Brown, for for us that didn't get a chance to see him play, it, it's it's kind of mind-boggling just who he is. Like you mentioned, Jim Brown and people just go, oh, man –
4: I love Jim Brown. I think it's harder and harder to deny Tom Brady with the way that he's been winning at the clip that he just, I mean, you can call it recency bias, fine. Um, But him winning a championship with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the fact that he got drafted 199th, you know, to turn out to be one of the greatest players we've ever seen, if not the GOAT, the greatest player of all time, seven Super Bowl championships. Zubin, it's um, Tom Brady's, building this legacy at the quarterback position, how we're enamored with the quarterback position. Tom Brady has to be in the conversation too.
1: So this is a great conversation from the guys this morning about who would be on the NFL logo. I want your thoughts. You can tweet me at Jason Fitz. You can also tweet the show at Spain and Fitz. Give me your thoughts on who you would put on the NFL logo. I'll be the first to say that I disagree with Keyshawn in any concept that would put Jim Brown on the logo. Just there has to be a real conversation about Jim Brown, the human being. If you've never looked up uh, some of the allegations and some of the charges he's faced and things he's been convicted of, it's worth a Google search. And also, let's remember that during a jailhouse interview with Sports Illustrated in 2002... He was asked about his history of violence, his quote and response. I can definitely get angry, and I've taken that anger out inappropriately in the past, but I've done so with both men and women. So do I have a problem with women? No. That's after multiple allegations of physical abuse uh, towards women. So how we just ignore that portion of the Jim Brown conversation constantly when we talk about who should represent the NFL is beyond me. I can't wrap my head around it. Now, Tom Brady would make a lot of sense, but I think one of the things we have to acknowledge when we talk about logos is what the silhouette means I mean you think about the NBA logo and it's it's a player and we all know at this point it's Jerry West but how many people look at it and say ah Jerry West versus for example if you were putting Michael on there doing the dunk we all know you would immediately say ah there's Michael like what silhouette of Tom Brady would immediately give us some sort of an impact mindset around who that player is I don't really know the answer to that I mean, I would think realistically that if we were going to have a conversation about a logo, it would include somebody like Walter Payton, maybe somebody that's diving or doing something that we've seen so many times that it's a very identifiable silhouette. Without that, what really differentiates to most people for generations to come, the silhouette of Tom Brady versus, let's say, the silhouette of... Joe Montana that's why it's not an easy sort of answer I want your thoughts on it you can get into it uh, at Spain and Fitz at Jason Fitz let me know on social media what you think who you would have as the NFL logo if they were to put one in Spain and Fitz presented by Progressive Insurance you can say big when you bundle auto home motorcycle RV or boat insurance visit progressive.com now obviously while we're talking about all-time greats there's a current great that's going to be in action tonight let's get into that next
2: This was division right here. Here's
0: Harden off balance. Three is good from the top side.
2: For the first time in his career, I get the feeling like I might be watching the best player in basketball when I watch Harden. I've never felt that way before. Harden splits a double layup.
0: Good as he drove right by the baseline.
2: I think we have to implement the phrase, get used to it. The way he's playing, he just reminds you of why they were so good for so long. You know, he is just a spectacular player.
1: So on Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. I'm just so used to saying her name. Uh, Sarah's out for the rest of the week. Uh, At some point, when you start talking about James Harden, you have to accept that there are multiple truths. All right? So as the Rockets have lost a bunch of games in a row, and they stink. We all know the Rockets are terrible. We also know the Rockets have just announced they're going to go ahead and retire Harden's jersey. And they're sort of putting into this, hey, everything's great. We're good. We're good. We love James, and we're happy he's having so much success. This reminds me a little bit right after a divorce or a breakup when you see somebody, you know, your ex is out there and your ex is thriving and your friends ask you how you are doing, even though you're in the dumps and you know that you haven't done laundry in a month and a half and that your entire house just stinks, you know that everything's just gone to hell and you're looking around your life saying what's going on, but your friends ask and you're like, oh man. I'm just so happy that she's found happiness because I still love her and I want the best for her. And even though we didn't work out, she's a great person and she deserves it. Like that's the immediate reaction so often after a breakup. It takes a little time before honesty can seep in. And then in the honesty, you're like, oh, no, I don't want her to thrive at all. right? But you got to get through that breakup period, that post-breakup period before you can look in the mirror and then be honest about yourself and be honest about where you are while also being honest about what you really want for the ex that didn't work out a little bit what it feels like here with Harden, who's having tremendous success with Brooklyn. And Brooklyn's trying, or in, in the meantime, Houston's trying to handle it all the right way. Uh, uh, these things can all be true. Harden can be spectacular. Harden can be an MVP candidate. Harden, Harden can be reminding all of us why he is absolutely incredible and why he deserves to be in the conversation as the best player in the NBA. All of that can be true, while at the same time, he can have mishandled the way he left Houston. Now, what does mishandled mean? Uh, You know, in a world of players' rights where we want, I want players to be able to go out and sort of affect some of their will and affect their destiny. At the same time, Houston did everything they could. I mean, does Houston have the right to feel jilted? Yes. Does Harden have the right to want to go play in Brooklyn? Yes. Can Harden be great in, in Brooklyn while Houston still feels like they got the short end of the stick? Absolutely. All of these things can be true at once. But when you start talking about Houston deciding that they're going to make this announcement now, I mean, it's fair to say why. Like, they're trying to show everybody that they're still strong and they feel good about everything. They're trying to show everybody that they're not a wreck, right? I mean, that's the only benefit I can think about for right now. When you start talking about retiring people's numbers, when you start talking about legacy for what it means for a player that was just a a face of your organization, the one thing you have in that situation is time you got all sorts of time to make that happen. You can take your time and do it the right way. You can take your time, let everything play out, and do it long term. Why do you ever rush into this conversation? You rush into the conversation because you're trying to win in the court of public opinion. You're trying to show everybody, hey, even though James is doing great, so are we. Maybe right now, the best thing to do, and I'll steal this from Gojo, Mike Golick Jr. used to always say when we were working together, sometimes the best thing to say is nothing at all, and that's the hardest thing to say. I think in this situation, it might be the hardest thing for Houston just to sit silent and realize that Brooklyn is thriving and Harden is thriving, and they look like they are just an absolute match made in heaven. It's the, the hardest thing to sit there and watch somebody and say, you know what, they are actually better off not being with me anymore. But realistically, instead of overcompensating, that's what it feels like Houston's doing now. Houston's coming in and they're saying, hey, we're good if you're good. We're happy if you're happy. but well, we all know that can't be true. I mean, that simply can't be true from an organizational standpoint. It can't be true for your fans. It can't be true. There's a time to absolutely respect everything that James Harden has done for the city of Houston for the Rockets organization. That time is not even less than one season through after he demanded a trade. That time is not after he left them high and dry to go do his own thing. That time will come eventually, but it's not right now. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Again, hit us up on Twitter. Let me know who you think should be the NFL logo. In the meantime, college basketball is getting heated up, and I have a question I need an answer from an expert on. We'll get it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio.
0: You're listening to the Spain
1: and Fitz podcast. One of the phrases in college football that gets fans worked up more than any other is the eye test. And how a committee can sit there and justify who gets in and out of the playoff based on the eye test is something that seems maddening to the entire fan base. But what we haven't talked about enough is that that very eye test may be the the line in the sand that impacts college basketball as well, especially this year. So we're going to get some help figuring it out. It's Spain and Fitz. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. We're brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. I want to get into some college basketball with one of my favorites. And by the way, seamless uh, plug here. If you guys are up early on Saturday mornings, you can check out Countdown to Game Day in the ESPN app, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, anywhere digitally you follow ESPN. I hang out with Christine Williamson every Saturday morning from 1030 to 11 Eastern to get you ready for game day, get a little college basketball fun in there. So Myron Metcalf joining us now, ESPN senior writer. Myron, thanks so much for the time, man. I'm trying to figure out in a world, in a world, where everybody is suddenly, uh, they're only playing against conference opponents we don't really know who's great we don't know who's terrible we're just trying to guess based on everything like if you were on the committee what specifically would you be looking for as the line in the sand to figure out who deserves to be in
5: (laughs) i mean that's like the million dollar question i mean at the end of the day you can only judge what's in front of you and i think this has to be the year where you look at performances um you look at dominant performances like I, i think that has to matter like you can't say Gonzaga's playing in the West Coast Conference and they haven't been, uh, you know, facing power five teams, but they're beating everybody by 20. You know, that means something. Uh, I think what Illinois did to Michigan without Ayo DeSumo, that means something. They, they stumped that Michigan team. Now, that might be an outlier, but it happened. And I think that says a lot about who they are. So I think the goal has to be kind of who has separated themselves. But once you get to the bubble – I have no idea what you do there because you've got teams coming off pauses, teams heating up, teams getting cold. It's going to be honestly the most difficult selection process that has ever happened because of all the COVID-related challenges.
1: Well, and, and you mentioned Michigan getting blown out, but, uh, I mean, we're also in a world where Baylor lost, right? Like usually a bad loss yeah. is so significant. And this year I just can't figure out how to weigh a bad loss because it seems like a big win matters a lot more than a bad loss in this current environment.
5: Yeah, I mean, you look at that Baylor team that comes off a three-week pause, right? They, They don't practice together for three weeks. And then they play Iowa State and nearly lose that game. Clearly, they weren't the same team. Then they go to Allen Fieldhouse and Lawrence, Kansas, and they lose to the Jayhawks. And then they almost lose to West Virginia. I mean, maybe you can make the case that they should have lost that game. But I think the Saturday game against Kansas, that says more about Kansas, right? I think Kansas is just a good team, improving team and to squeeze out a win at West Virginia I think the committee will look at this Baylor stretch and go you know what they're back uh, we've seen what they've been able to do uh, yes they were looking rocky early on after the pause but they're back i just don't know how other teams will be assessed though i don't know how many how teams will be looked at in terms of if they struggled after a pause how will the committee take that into consideration because this is just going to be it's going to be weird man to see who gets in who gets left out and then who's actually ready to compete once the tournament begins.
1: We're talking to Myron Metcalf, ESPN senior writer on Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz here. And, you know, last year at this time, the, this was when everything started to shut down, right? Like we were, were right at that one-year anniversary conference tournaments. You talk to so many players and coaches around the game. I mean, how does that last year's moment play into the heads of everybody this year when they're trying to remain cautiously optimistic but still have that recent moment in their minds?
5: It honestly kind of feels like everybody at a poker table with somebody on a hot streak and like you don't want to talk, right? Like you don't, whatever your superstition is, like you're sticking to it. Because people are really trying to avoid saying anything about last year. Because I keep telling people, college basketball is the one sport that actually knows what it's like to lose a championship. Like this isn't a team that's trying to prevent losing the NCAA tournament for the first time. They're trying to make sure it doesn't happen for a second time. So I think there's just a lot of cautious folks. A lot of coaches are just saying, get me from the conference tournament to the NCAA tournament with no problems, knock on wood. And they're just hopeful that they can get into that bubble. I think once you get into the bubble, I think once you get to Indianapolis, I think things will go fine. I think things will will be good uh, because there will be a lot of protocols and restrictions for players and coaches and staff in Indianapolis. The challenge is going to be how you get from this point to the start of the tournament which is starting later not a thursday starting on a friday and then some of these tournaments jason are going to end this weekend so you got kids who are gonna have to wait two three weeks before they get into that bubble and we all know a lot can happen between now and then so i think a lot of coaches are cautious and they're just trying to knock on wood man and hope for the best
1: so myron has the ncaa given us any indication of what happens god forbid if we get into the bubble we're in the tournament and a team that's in that bubble has a positive test?
5: That team is eliminated. Uh, according to the NCAA, they forfeit the game. Um, th- there's only one way for replacement teams to be used, and that is before the team actually starts. So per that policy, the first four teams that are left out of the field, they will be in line to replace anyone who has a challenge going into the tournament. So technically, Gonzaga, God forbid you would never want it to happen, could have a challenge with COVID before the tournament. And technically, if that happens, let's say Duke is the first team left out. Duke would then replace Gonzaga in the bracket. They won't receive the bracket. Duke would just play as a number one seed. The same thing could happen to a 16. And Gonzaga could end up playing Duke in the first round if that's what happens. You hope it doesn't happen, but there is that chance. Once you get into the bubble, once the tournament actually starts, there are no replacement teams. If you can't continue, if your team can't continue, you're eliminated. Your opponent advances. So that is the reality of this. There will be no replacement teams. If your team can't go, you're out. The tournament continues without you.
1: We're talking to Myron Metcalf, ESPN senior writer on Spain and Fitz. This is Jason Fitz. And, you know, you mentioned Duke a second ago. And I always find it interesting, Myron, because – Duke's not used to being on the bubble. We all know that. But you've got some brand-name schools that are on the bubble that you know have played better of late than they played early on. When you start looking at COVID and the impact that it's had on this season, and then you see teams that are improving at the very end of the season, is there some human nature element that's going to give more credit to big brands that we've seen do this before that are playing well to say, oh, early on the struggles must have been COVID-related, we should put them in the tournament?
5: You know, I, I mean, that's always going to be the conspiracy theory out there. The challenge is going to be, like, these brand names just haven't done enough. You know, like, if Michigan State is left out, it's because they just haven't been good enough, right? No matter how strong they end the season. Like, they've got to do a lot still, I think, to get in. Uh, Kentucky has no chance unless they win the SEC tournament. Duke, to me, is out. Uh, And maybe not the first team out, maybe the fourth or fifth team out. They just haven't been good enough. So I don't know how you kind of give those teams credit and say, oh, they kind of got hot late. Maybe they put themselves in a conversation. I just don't see it. And then a team like Indiana uh, just can't win. You know, down the stretch, Syracuse, Memphis, same thing. So in a year where you've got these bubble teams that have a legitimate case and it's the brand name versus the generic brand, certainly I think we all have seen moments where the brand name wins out. The problem this year is a lot of these teams just aren't good enough, and they're going to get left out because their resume doesn't qualify no matter what their
1: name is. It feels like every year, Myron, we see, you know, teams beat up on each other, but you're totally right. Like when you start talking about the Big Ten, we've seen a lot of mediocre teams that one week look like world beaters and the next week look like they have no idea what they're doing on the floor. So, I like, I don't envy the job of the committee in trying to figure all of this out. Uh, we've seen so much conference play since that's all we've seen. Does that in any way sort of lessen uh, the, the conference tournaments for everybody when, when all we've seen this year are teams within the same conference take each other on?
5: You know, I actually think it makes them more fun. Like, if you think about the Big Ten tournament, right, like those semifinals are going to feel like the Elite Eight. Like, you could technically get Ohio State, Illinois, uh, a Michigan team that's right there in the mix for a number one seed. Like, you can get all those teams competing uh, at the end. You can also get a team like Michigan State maybe making a run and pulling off an upset. Big 12, same deal. You got Kansas, which looks really good. Baylor looks great. West Virginia could have a rematch from that great game yesterday against Baylor. So there are just a lot of options, I think, in these conference tournaments. And I think the basketball will be good because a lot of these teams are just now finding a rhythm. So I think we're going to see some of our best basketball of the year in these conference tournaments. And that's what will make them very fun to watch.
1: Before we let you get out of here, Myron, uh, there's a serious conversation going around the college basketball landscape right now with Creighton's uh, coach, Greg McDermott, I'm going to talk about it in a second. Before I get anywhere, for anyone that hasn't seen, he made some racially charged statements to his team. Uh, what were what was your reaction to it, Myron? Uh,
5: I was disappointed. I mean, and, and it it's sad. Um, I thought it was traumatic what he said. I thought that's harmful. Um, and I just wasn't concerned about the apology. I was worried about the young men in the locker room. I don't think he should be allowed to coach tonight. If I'm being honest, I think he should be suspended. Um, because, and I talked to multiple coaches last night after this happened. I said, if a white player in your locker room had looked across that locker room at, at the black players on your team and said, guys, we need you to stay on the plantation after you lost a game, would that white player be allowed to play the next game? Every coach I talked to said no. Every coach I talked to said no. There would have to be a process before I allowed that player back onto the team. I don't know why that's different with coaches who suspend players who make mistakes all the time. If Greg McDermott has sincerely made a mistake, that's possible. I mean, that, that, you know, the phrasing that he used, I've never heard it before. I don't know why he would use that in that context after loss, but it was wrong and it was racist and it was traumatic for the people around that locker room who had to hear it. I don't know why he's allowed to coach tonight. If the school is serious, he should be suspended for this Villanova game. And then you figure it out from there. But to watch him coach after making those comments, I'm having a real hard time stomaching that.
1: Myron, I always appreciate you, my friend. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Myron Metcalf, ESPN senior writer. Those are his thoughts on some uh, controversial statements, some awful racially charged statements that were made by Greg McDermott. I'll give you my thoughts on it and uh, why my opinion a little bit harsher uh, than Myron's is. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio.
0: You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Action
1: has consequence. And accountability is everything, especially when you don't just represent yourself. You don't just represent your players, but you represent an entire university. And right now, more than ever, that's a message that needs to be heard. It's Bain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. And we're going to get to some straight talk brought to you by straight, no, straight Talk Wireless. Greg McDermott is the head coach of Creighton men's basketball team. He's issued an apology for what he said last week after a loss with his team. Stood in front of his team, and he's admitted to saying specifically, quote, guys, we got to stick together. We need both feet in. I need everybody to stay on the plantation. I can't have anybody leave the plantation. Now, let's understand that this is a white coach talking to a room full of players that are mostly black, Right. And he has said in his apology, quote, I immediately recognized my egregious mistake and quickly addressed my use of such insensitive words with my team. I've never used that analogy, and it is not indicative of who I am as a person or as a coach. I'm deeply sorry. I've apologized to our student athletes and to our staff as well as to our president. You start to think about what all of this means, and it raises a great question of accountability. You just heard Myron Metcalf before we went to commercial talking about the fact that he shouldn't be coaching tonight. I'll take it a step further. I don't think Greg McDermott should be coaching at all. I think at some point, action has consequence. When you represent a school, when you are the front porch to an organization, when you are the very person that represents the brand, the image, the ethics, the morals of a school, you are held to a higher standard. That's the only fair way to do it. Because when you are a coach, you sit in living rooms, you look at parents, and you say, I'm going to raise your young man safely. I'm going to make sure that he grows into the young man that you know he can be. It's part of the sales pitch. Man, you're pitching education, right? You're pitching the school. We talk about these things all the time. You better be pitching those things because, let's be real, players can't transfer very easily just because a coach leaves doesn't mean a player can just suddenly go play anywhere they want. We've limited player movement, and every time it comes into some sort of conversation, the answer is, well, they committed to the school, not to the coach. Okay, so fine. Who is the coach in this situation? The coach is now the ultimate representative of the school because his sales pitch, his sales pitch to the family is come play here because of this environment, because what I can create and because how I can improve you as a person. The sales pitch to the alumni, to the donors is I will represent you on the court. And what's the demand that a coach makes? A coach sits in front of his team and says all the time, remember, everything you say and do represents the brand that you wear on your chest. When kids go away for a break, for a vacation, when kids are out for the summer, what do we always hear? Remember, everything you do represents the school that you play for. We ask kids to live to a certain standard, but we don't ask coaches. Now, I understand anybody can make a mispeak. I've done it myself. I'm the first to admit it. I've said things in front of the microphone that I regret. I've looked back. I've had to apologize for things I've said when I got heated on a mic. A hundred percent. But action has consequence. And when you are an educator, when you are paid to lead young men at a university, representing a university as an educator, you have a higher responsibility. If a math teacher stood in front of his math class and said, guys, this test was terrible. I'm going to need everybody to stay on the plantation. What would the reaction be? How would that teacher be received? Would that teacher still have a job? The answer is plainly no. It is plainly no. And just because somebody is leading a basketball school that is having a good year, doesn't mean that that standard's any different. If anything, coaches have to be held to a higher standard. I want you to hear what Jay will had to say. ESPN host, you heard him this morning on KJ and Z. This was his initial reaction to McDermott's comments.
4: I'm severely disappointed. I'm just going to give you guys my my real reaction. In real time, Key. So I I, I see the comment. I'm reading it. And I'm thinking to myself, I've never heard an analogy like that before. Never in my life. You know, keep both feet on the plantation. I've heard get off the reservation. Even to that degree, that's troubling, right, in uh, this climate that we live in. And when I heard that, I just, I was like, man. And I started thinking about, you know, Denzel Mahoney, Damian Jefferson, Christian Bishop. These are guys that are top players on their team that are African-American players, right? And um, so I started reaching out to people. I'm going to tell you guys, from one of my sources inside, I heard that one of the, some of the players want to boycott. Wow. They're not sure they want to play. Mm-hmm. They just don't know how to go about it. Mm-hmm. And it puts them in a very un- uncomfortable situation to now make these type of decisions. I mean, think about that. You've got players in that locker room that aren't
1: comfortable stepping on the court, not to mention the fact that he's going to have to ask, answer questions in recruiting. There's a different level of accountability now because players have figured out they have a voice, whatever voice that may be. They have a brand. And you may not like name image likeness. You may not like any of the conversation about college athletes getting paid. But let's be real. There is a magic trend happening right now. And that trend is empowerment for kids that are rising into college. And as that continues to grow, that means that they're going to sit in the living room and they're going to ask coaches tough questions. They're going to ask schools tough questions. Why did you say this is one stuff, tough question. Why did you stand for it is another. Why did you allow it? That's a question that any kid will ask of a school if they're passionate about issues. You can't be wishy-washy anymore. You've got to stand for something because kids are going to ask you about it and they're going to drill down on what they expect. You don't believe me? And this is what Keyshawn said this morning
4: about whether or not he'd play for McDermott. I don't know if Greg McDermott bounces back from that at Creighton. Maybe somewhere else in time. I'm not sure at Creighton but if the players decide to do that.
3: But I don't even want to play for people like that. I, that's what I'm I saying. Don't wanna, it, it, it hurts. I don't even want to play it for that. It hurts
4: the optics of your university by keeping a guy like that on board, even as you move forward. Because it will, you know how this world is recruiting key. People try oh, yeah, to use everything over. against you. Oh, it's over, though. Everything against Why you. Why would
3: you want to go play for him?
4: And by the way, there's going to be so many alternatives over the next couple of days that are going to pan out. About optionality for kids and what they want to do, you need your best selling points to bring top tier talent to the university like that, and um, it's not, not an going to be good for them moving forward. It's
3: not an easy cleanup. it's no, not. It's not. A, it's not a slip of the tongue. It's comfort. It's I'm comfortable getting up here and speaking to my team this way because I've done this somewhere in my life before and probably multiple times.
1: That's straight talk, straight talk, wireless, no contracts, no compromise. Think about what you're hearing there and think about what we've seen in the last 12 months. We've seen college football players stand up and say, Hey, if you won't change the song, I'll go play somewhere else. We've seen college football players stand up and say, if you won't change the flag, I'll play somewhere else. We've seen college basketball players say, you know what? I'm going to opt out. I'm going to figure out what's best for me so that I can make my livelihood. I mean, you may not like it if you're a college sports fan and it doesn't matter. The tides are changing. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you realize the consequence isn't just in the awful things that came out of his mouth. It's not just about that for Greg McDermott. It's about what he did to his university, his employer. It's about the look he just gave his school. Because believe me, there will be players talking about it, there will be fans talking about it, and there will be media talking about it for a long time. This isn't going anywhere, and more importantly, it shouldn't. An apology is not good enough. It's Spain and Fitz coming up. Jets fans and Raiders fans have something in common today, and they've all lost their minds. I'll tell you why based on some things that were said today. Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Jets fans, Raiders fans, both of you today heard from your team's GMs. And both of you as fan bases may have lost your minds collectively, but don't worry about it. You're just doing what so many fans do. But it's a fixable problem, and I'll tell you how to fix it. Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests are on the Goodyear hotline. And look, I get it. I get that at some point there's this trajectory. Uh, quarterbacks are like a roller coaster. Is you're going up, you know, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting for that big moment. You're on that slow climb up. You think this is about to be it. This is about to be incredible. This is going to be amazing. That's where Jets fans were just a year and a half ago with Sam Darnold. That's where the Raiders fans were when Derek Carr was having an MVP caliber season in 2016. You watch these things go up and up and up and you can't wait till you get to that spot where all of a sudden you get the rush in the bottom of your stomach because you know you're on the ride of a lifetime and it's going to get you to where you want to be And then unfortunately, it turns out that uh, maybe the ride's not as exciting as you thought. Maybe it's not as dependable as you thought. Maybe the ride isn't as thrilling as you thought. And suddenly you say, eh, well, that's not worth it. And so all of a sudden, you become convinced that your problems as an organization can be fixed by fixing the quarterback. The problem is that skews the way you view everything, including your GM when your GM speaks. Now, for anybody that hasn't seen it, uh, the Jets, their GM, Joe Douglas, spoke today this is what he said this is his quote about Sam Darnold quote as it pertains to Sam we think Sam is a dynamic player in this league with unbelievable talent he really has a chance to hit his outstanding potential moving forward but if calls are made I will answer them and that becomes a story wait Sam Darnold might be available the Jets are taking calls on Sam Darnold oh they must not believe in him at all that's the realistic moment there that suddenly it becomes they must not believe in him at all but don't worry Jets fans you're not alone My beloved Raiders in the same boat. Man, I don't know if there's a fan base more split on their starting quarterback than Raiders fans with Derek Carr. I get the chance to talk to our ESPN affiliate in Vegas every week. I talk to Raider Nation Radio every week. And, man, every week we talk about Derek Carr. Well, Mike Mayock, the Raiders GM today, talked about Derek Carr, and this is what he said.
2: Obviously, I can't talk about anybody else's players, so I won't. I'll just talk about Derek. And I'm going to tell you the same thing I've told you guys the last couple years, which is – I think Derek Carr had his best year yet under John Gruden. Uh, I, I think he's one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL, and we couldn't be happier with him. And I tell you every year, I mean, we evaluate every position every year. I have no idea who can, who, who might call me or who might not call me. So you have to do the evaluations both on your own players and every other player in the league. And you've got to stack your boards and understand what league value is all around the league, and we do that. But if you're asking me about Derek, I mean, I think John and I would both stand shoulder to shoulder and pound the table for Derek Carr.
1: So you got the GM of the Raiders saying, you know what? The head coach and I would stand shoulder to shoulder. We would pound the table for him. I'm still going to listen to calls like, because you never know who's going to call or what's going to be out on the table. And suddenly what am I getting? I'm getting tweets from Raiders fans saying, up. Dreaded vote of confidence. I'm getting tweets from other Raiders fans saying, Mayock, just building up his worth. Like, at what point do you actually want your GM to speak so that you'll take him for what he's saying? Yes. Yes, you can look at it and say, well, of course, these teams want ble- to build up their own quarterback because that builds up trade value. And what if that quarterback's still back in the room? Fine. Or, or you look at your, your GM and you say, well, why aren't you being more aggressive? Why aren't you taking calls? Like, GMs, are they're, they're done either way. They're done if they do, and then they're done if they don't. Hard to say without using the other word. I mean, you start thinking about what we expect from GMs. What is it? You want your GM to be honest? What did these two teams' GMs tell you today? The Jets and the Raiders gave you similar messages. We believe in our guy. We think our guy's going to be great. We think our guy can be fantastic. But when the phone rings, we're going to take a call. Because you have no idea what's on the other end of that call. For all you know, some dumb team's going to offer you 15 first-round picks and lifetime uh, gift certificates to Flemings for free steak. I mean, you don't know. So you take the call. That's the smart thing to do when you run a football team. You're obligated to take the call. That's what you do. But that doesn't mean that there's any value on the other line. See, this is the other spot where football fans just lose their minds. Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz, flying solo tonight on ESPN Radio. The other spot where everybody loses their mind is disproportionate value. You are convinced. If you are a Jets fan, you are now convinced that your team will be a liability if they go in with Sam Donald at the quarterback position. You are convinced that your team is going to be trash if Sam Donald's your starting quarterback. But in the same breath, you're convinced that somebody else is going to trade you a ton of equity for him. Really? Play the shoes on the other foot game. If you're a Raiders fan, you're sitting there saying, oh my God, Derek Carr cannot get us where we want to be, but I'm pretty sure the Colts will give us two first-round draft picks for him. where, Where does this come from? Where does this inflated value come from? Put the shoe on the other foot. Ask yourself this. If I was a fan of, insert team name here, and I traded for Derek Carr, what would I be comfortable giving up? How would I feel about it? If my favorite team traded for Sam Darnold, how happy would I be about it? I mean, if you put an honest answer to that, you realize that most fans would not be all that psyched. Like, nobody's throwing a oh, thank God Sam Darnold's coming to town party. But you're convinced he still has value on the open trade market? Why? Because of his contract? Please. His contract actually, I think, is a liability. Teams are going to have to make a quicker decision on what to do with Sam Darnold because they only have one year to figure it out before they start paying him all sorts of money. I don't think there's a, uh, I, I don't think that there's a, a problem necessarily with uh, Derek Carr's contract. I think Carr's contract is absolutely good. It's a year-to-year contract, not a lot of guaranteed money left. His contract's abso- ab- ab- actually a help. But that's also part of the reason I don't think the Raiders are going to trade him. And what are you trading him for? Again, what are you trading him for? you got to suddenly come in. Now, you guys know I'm risk averse at the quarterback position. I hear that all the time. I don't love taking big risk at the quarterback position. I don't love rolling the dice because when you roll the dice at the quarterback position, everybody's job's on the line. All right. When you start over at the quarterback position, remember I said earlier, it takes three years to know if you got your guy. So, That means that you are starting a three-year maybe, mm, maybe not, mm, maybe process all over again. Just ask the Browns about Baker. My God, you're starting that process all over again. For who? Justin Fields? Zach Wilson? Maybe. Maybe. But you're also telling me that in the most unprecedented year ever in college football, where we had the strangest scheduling, where we had COVID interruptions, and where nothing felt normal. That's the year that you got exactly what you needed to make the perfect representation of these quarterbacks. No. Yes, you can roll the dice, and maybe, maybe you'll get lucky. Yes, you can roll the dice, and maybe you'll hit it. But come on. You really think that that's a given? So you're willing to start the whole process over on the Mike could as they say in the South, on the if come. Oh, well, you know what, Zach Wilson might-could be better. I mean, that's what Jets fans are asking for. And Raiders fans even more maddening on this because you pick so late in the first round, there's not going to be a quarterback available. Y'all got to decide what you want. Do you want your GM to stand up and be honest? Do you want your GM to be good at his job? If the answer to those two questions are yes, then what you should hear from them is simple. We believe in our guy. We love, in our, we love our guy. And we're going to continue to take phone calls because that's the right message from a GM. That's also the right business strategy from a GM. And that's just a smart way to make football business decisions every single day. That's what you should want from your GM. If anything today, Raiders and Jets fans have one thing in common. They can both look and say, hey, maybe the guy running this organization has a tone, a mindset on the tone he needs to take in these press conferences. The other part of it is both fan bases need to get really comfortable with the fact that there is a very real possibility that there is no change at the quarterback position And that also doesn't mean all is lost. Spain and Fitz coming up. Who needs the all-star break the most? And does anybody even really get excited for it anymore? I'll tell you why I don't think they do next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app.
0: You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast.
1: Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. Like I said, ESPN radio presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive's Home Code Explorer is changing the way you buy home insurance now. You can go online, get a custom quote, and save both time and money. Who doesn't want to do that? Learn more at progressive.com. I'm asking you guys out on the at Spain and Fitz, at Jason Fitz, uh, in honor of some of the conversation that we've been having about the NBA changing their logo. If they were going to add an NFL player to the NFL logo, who would it be? I've had a few of you point out that the shield is bigger than any player. Thanks for not answering the question. All right. I tweeted out a specific question as specific as I could. And I still had people say, well, nobody's ever going. Okay. Thank you so much. But as for the responses, we're getting, getting a lot of votes for Walter Payton, which makes a lot of sense to me. A couple of votes for Bo Jackson, uh, a lot for Barry Sanders. though, and I think Barry makes sense too. like, you think about individual running styles and sort of the way they looked and famous poses, right? Famous poses. Uh, to me, make a lot of sense, and so uh, Barry Sanders had a really familiar-looking silhouette when he ran, and, and Walter Payton with the one-handed uh, football. Also, uh, Jim, a uh, Big Ten man, seventy-seven, said I could see this as the, as the logo, and it was Montana holding the uh, uh, touchdown hands up in the air. I love that actually. That uh, reminds me of my childhood, though. I'm an old man, right? So a lot of kids would look at that and say, "What?" Also. A lot of you guys sarcastically suggesting some of the big boys. So on behalf of Michael, Jr., I'll say I love the thick love, uh, but I don't think uh, I don't think an offensive lineman is going to be the logo of the NFL just because they are uh, particularly large people. So uh, also, I'm surprised I haven't gotten more votes, a a few for Joe Namath in the uh, fur. I'm surprised I haven't gotten more Tom Landry. We're in the, uh, you know, we the top hat, the, the, the hat look for him. So not a top hat, whatever that hat is you know what I'm saying? Uh, but keep them coming at Jason Fitz at Spain and Fitz. Uh, who would you put uh, on the NFL logo if they were going to add a player? In the meantime, that NBA logo conversation reminds me that the All-Star break is coming up. And uh, if we're going to have a conversation about the All-Star break, it comes in a couple of different layers. Number one, is the All-Star break really that significant anymore? And I know every year we talk about this, has it died down? But, but I think there's a reason for it. And part of it is the change in the game, right? When you think about the dunk contest, when I was a kid, the dunk contest was everything. Well, why was it everything? I mean, partially because you have Michael Jordan competing all the time, but also because dunks hadn't been thought of that way. I mean, the evolution of basketball and the athleticism and the way the guys are playing right now, the dunks that you see in games sometimes are better than the dunks that we were seeing in the contest in the late 80s, early 90s. That sort of process through how dunking is done and the way kids grow up doing it at this point to me makes the dunk contest almost eh, boring I mean it's become as a producer extraordinaire Jake pointed out as we were getting ready for the show it's become less about the dunk and more about the props it's fun watching somebody jump over a bunch of different things to dunk a basketball shirt but just like a monster truck show is fun for a few minutes for me like oh cool that truck went over how many cars after you see that once or twice it just sort of falls flat so I'm looking at it saying, what could possibly be done in a dunk contest that really blows your mind anymore? Think about the Olympics. All right, back, back in the day uh, when you would see figure skaters do anything that had triple in front of it. Like, I don't know anything about what's what, but I know that a triple sow cow or triple lutz, I don't even know what those are. But I remember as a kid hearing triple in front of anything, and it meant massive score, and the judges would just be in awe on the broadcast, right? Now you see everybody doing quads, quadruples. I mean, because triples are so <laughs> yesterday. I don't know how you continue to top these incredible feats. I mean, the athleticism is remarkable. But when you see it year in and year out, it just sort of at some point runs numb. And so for that reason, it feels like the, the, the slam dunk contest has a lot, a lot lost a lot of its equity with so many of us. But what about the shooting contest, the three-point contest? Well, yeah, that was also a lot of fun to watch as a kid. Because you were watching you know, the guys just throw them up. And it was just great to see somebody shoot with that level of accuracy and that level of pace. The problem is the NBA has changed so much that that's also just a normal game. I mean, watching a college basketball game right now is about the same as watching a three-point contest was, again, in the late 80s or early 90s. I mean, everybody's heaving them up from everywhere. I don't want to take anything away from an all-star game experience, but I'm just not sure that there's really any value left in it. We've gotten so accustomed to seeing superstars on every team. We've got so accustomed to the year of the duo or the the trios that are required to win championships that seeing all-stars on the court at once together doesn't really have that same emphasis. We got so used to heroes and villains in one era of the NBA where everybody hated each other that seeing them come together or against each other in an all-star game felt special. It doesn't necessarily feel that way. It was also, in a previous generation, tougher to see games all the time. You didn't get to see every game, every team. So you might not have seen Donovan Mitchell play. Well, now everybody does. You see the highlights constantly. You see every single game. All of this takes away some of the meaning on the all-star experience. And that's unfortunate for the NBA because for a long time, it was an incredible part of how the brand built, and it was an incredible thing that you looked forward to year-round. The problem is now it's not working. And rather than give us the same dull thing over and over and over again, I challenge the NBA, find a way to do something different. Find different challenges. Find different explosive ways for people to have fun. Let people see things they've never seen before because the same old, same old isn't working. Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio. Uh, In the meantime, as we look at who needs the break the most, I mean, the Lakers are falling apart. And I keep telling you every week, I'm not worried about it. They don't have any AD. They've lost five of their last seven. But it does feel like maybe they need a break. LeBron uh, taking a night off. Maybe they just need a moment to regroup which is unfortunate for the rest of the NBA because you got to feel like when you hit this sort of a lull in the middle of the season, it will just become some level of you know, motivation later in the year. To me, when you start talking about the NBA break, uh, the All-Star break this year is particularly tough on some teams. The Mavs have won nine of their last 12. The Knicks, back to 500. I mean, I, I, I'm seeing some teams that have a little momentum. The last thing you necessarily need right now when you've got a little momentum, especially with younger teams, is a break. Spain it fits on ESPN radio and uh, Jake points out producer extraordinaire that maybe NBA players are making extraordinary things look ordinary I think that's probably true don't we see that in the MVP conversation I mean come on when Russ averaged a triple double it was a big deal right but then all of a sudden it happens again and we're like eh, eh. think about the MVP conversation is there any more meaningless MVP than the NBA MVP We trash whoever the MVP is if they don't win the championship, so it's worthless. It actually becomes a a less meaningful award, and we all know it doesn't include the playoffs. That's a debate every year. I'm not having that debate right now. What I'm having is a conversation about the expectations that come on the MVP when we know that it doesn't result in a championship. Giannis wins an MVP, wins back-to-back MVPs, and it's like, ah, he's still going to go into this year saying, I don't know, prove it in the playoffs. I mean, it used to be a huge deal. All-star game appearances used to be a big deal. They're not anymore. MVPs used to be a big deal. If Harden's playing at an MVP level this year, let me me be real for a second. Who cares? What difference is it going to make? Who's going to turn around and say, yeah, but you know what? He won that MVP when he went to Brooklyn. If he doesn't win in the playoffs, it's going to be used as a reason to not support him in the regular season. And it doesn't happen that way in other sports. Aaron Rodgers was the MVP. Is he getting trashed for not even making it to the Super Bowl? I mean, is anyone turning around and saying, oh, Aaron fails again because he was the regular season MVP but didn't even get to Super Bowl? Like, the NBA has built a culture that is only about championships. And if it is only about championships, which realistically only a couple of teams are really in the running for every single year, let's just eliminate all the other junk. Because none of it seems to matter. None of it seems to resonate. And all any of it seems to do is suddenly become a negative. I really genuinely wonder, in 20 years, how we will look back on MVPs in the NBA. When we were talking about the legacy, if Giannis goes his entire career and wins a bunch of MVPs but never wins enough championships in the mind of NBA heads, will that suddenly turn around and be a negative? That he won MVPs but couldn't get it done in the playoffs? Really? Man, do other sports do that? No. It's unfortunate. Because I love watching the NBA. But what we have right now is a real reminder that there are several important parts of the NBA, important star building factors in the NBA that are absolutely without question broken. If we live in a world where people aren't that interested in the, in the all-star game, that the dunk contest doesn't resonate, the three-point contest feels like what we see every single night, and that MVPs are simply going to be chastised if in a team sport they don't win a championship, boy, for all of the other good things that the NBA may deliver in their product... That is a fatal mistake that needs to be fixed. Straight ahead, we're going to get into all things latest news on the NFL from one of our favorite experts from The Athletic. We'll break down what you need to know about the quarterback situation next on Spain & Fitz.
0: You're listening to the Spain & Fitz Podcast.
1: Spain & Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. And obviously there's tons of chaos going on around the NFL, especially at the quarterback position. So I want to get some expertise on it to do that. Let's head over on the Goodyear hotline to talk to Lindsey Jones. the am from The Athletic. Lindsay, thanks so much for the time. I'm trying to wrap my head around what's real in these quarterback situations. Frankly, we've never seen a quarterback like Deshaun or Dak just sit out. In your opinion, how realistic would it be that we could see a household name quarterback simply not willing to play if they're not happy with their situation?
6: Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be kind of the defining story, I think, of of 2021 is you know all of these guys, but I think Deshaun Watson is the the most interesting case when we're talking about um, could a guy sit out because of you know where he is with the franchise, obviously how unhappy he is. I mean, there this is very real, deeply ingrained frustration and unhappiness with the organization. Um, you know, but I, what's so interesting to me is that you know, I think of any group of professional athletes, NFL players tend to have the least amount of individual leverage. We've started to see that changing over the last couple of years where, you know, more and more guys are able to dictate parts of their careers, um, being able to, you know, force trades, get themselves out of situations that they don't want, help get themselves into, you know, better situations. It's been rare to see it with quarterbacks, but you know, we have this kind of very unique group of players right now that actually have an amount of leverage. And this is the time that you can assert it because, you know, you you can't do that all year round, right? I mean, right now, well, right now, and then I think as we get to into training camp and the closer we get to the regular season, that's the time when Deshaun Watson kind of really has leverage, right? Because, The only thing that he has, really, and you know, player that the only thing the players would have and or in collective bargaining negotiations is the threat of not playing. And it's so rare that that guys wouldn't do it. But if there's one guy uniquely positioned to actually sit out games and seems willing to kind of make that point, it would be Deshaun Watson. And you know, as much kind of radio fodder as it is, and look, I live in Denver when. Denver Sports Radio is going nuts about all everything with Deshaun Watson. And, you know, as much as we want to talk about you know, trade offers and where it could go, this feels like one of those situations that is not going to be resolved in the next week. I mean, this is something that will drag on. You know, I think there'll be some kind of artificial deadlines around the draft that if there would be potential trades, but it sounds like this is something that's going to go on, you know, for, for a long time. And, you know, we're going to be getting to, you know, week one of the regular season and wondering if this guy's going to show up and wonder if he's going to play, wondering if there's, you know, been any sort of resolution and um, if he were to, to, to sit out games, and if Deshaun Watson were to kind of assert that sort of leverage and his power, I mean, it, it could be landscape changing for the NFL and for players that would come behind him.
1: Let's be very clear, Lindsay, is a Raiders fan, I do not want to take on Mahomes and Watson twice a year. So that's just not OK. <laughs> he can't go to Denver. As long as he doesn't go to Denver, I'm fine. So uh, look at the other side of it, though, because you mentioned that, you know, we might go to into week one and say, will he show up? And if he is the unicorn, the one person that has the power and he doesn't assert his leverage, what's it do for the future? The next time a quarterback says, well, I'm going to sit out. I mean, it feels like at some point one's going to have to actually pull the trigger for anybody in the NFL to take note.
6: Yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, I think that's that's the big challenge, right, is that it takes a massive move, a lot of courage, and that's, that's not to say that, you know, he would have caved if he came back to play, because there could be a lot of benefits to him to play, but yeah, I mean, it's it would be such a bold move, and it is, you know, and it's a big risk. It's a big risk individually for your short-term, for your long-term career. Um, it hasn't necessarily worked out great for other players who have done it, but I think you know, quarterback is a little bit different and he's, you know, a generational type talent that I think he would be able to succeed, um, you know, if, if, if he were to sit out a year, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be so interesting for what it means both for him and then for all of the players who are going to come later, because yeah, I mean, if, if ultimately he decides to come back and play without really any significant changes, um, yeah, I mean, you would think the Texans would just be emboldened to continue the type of culture that they've built there. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I I wish I had a an answer of exactly how this is going to play out, other than it's going to be really, really um, interesting. And it's probably going to be one of these NFL business case studies that, you know, years from now we're we're looking back at the Deshaun Watson situation as being very instructive for you know, maybe for how players can assert their own power and from a team organization standpoint, how not to do your business.
1: We're talking to Lindsey Jones, the senior writer for the athletic on Spain and Fitz Sarah's out on vacation. Jason Fitz holding it down solo. So Lindsay, the other quarterback we can't stop talking about one of the other is Sam Darnold and, he gets sort of the vote from the Jets. I mean, the Jets are saying, "Hey, we're not listening to calls, but we'll take calls. We don't know what's going on here." I mean, trying to evaluate a quarterback that you have some body of work on for the Jets versus drafting a quarterback in this year's draft seems particularly difficult to do. So, how do you see this playing out for the Jets?
6: Yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting to hear um, you know, to hear them today say that they would, you know, answer the phone and accept those calls because but you have to do that, right? I mean, it's it would be malpractice if you're a general manager to not answer the phone when teams are calling with trade offers and yes this is like a subtweet at the houston texans right who are letting all (laughs) these trade offers go to voicemail um but yeah i mean the, the jets are in such a unique situation right now where they have a ton of leverage right because they do have they do have a quarterback you know he might not be you know, the shiny new toy anymore. You know, the, 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 the shine is definitely off of Sam Darnold now, but he's still a, a functional quarterback who I think has, he's really young. I think he still has a lot of upside, a lot of the things that teams liked about him just a couple of years ago when he was, you know, near the top of that draft class. You know, a lot of that stuff is still there and you have to wonder, okay, how much of what happened to him with the Jets was because of coaching was because of the weird and random injuries that he had along the way, you know, can he be fixed? They also have a lot of draft capital. They also, you know, they're sitting at a very desirable position. So, you know, they're really in a great situation right now to to be the Jets because, you know, you can accept all of these offers. You can just hear what people, you know, might want either to get Sam Darnold and, you know, then they can go ahead and, draft their new quarterback or they're in a position where they could trade a lot of picks and they could get in the Deshaun Watson C6. I mean, I think if there's any team that is maybe best situated to make a lot of moves and to maybe be a complete, um, you know, to kind of own free agency and own this next month, it's, it's just the Jets because of kind of the clean slate they have with new head coach. And you have so many options at quarterback that most other teams don't have.
1: We're talking to Lindsay Jones, senior writer for The Athletics, Bain and Fitz, Jason Fitz. Uh, I love what you just mentioned about free agency because it raises a really difficult question in my mind of how to handle free agency this year. I mean, you're talking about a salary cap that's lower than teams had initially expected a few years ago, obviously, because of COVID. And a couple of years that look like they could be slightly less stable than normal for the NFL. The NFL has no idea what it looks like right now, money-wise. So uh, even though we know this stuff always works out, Lindsay, how does this impact in your mind, free agency and the way teams will uh, sign contracts and how much money they're willing to shell out?
6: Yeah. So it's going to be, um, it's going to be really interesting over the next couple of weeks because we, we don't yet know exactly what the, what the salary cap is going to be. The, the NFL and the NFL PA, about 10 days ago or so decided to raise the floor. So it's not going to be any lower than 180 million, you know, the baseline. So last year was 198.5 million. So it won't be any lower than 180. There's now some like percolating optimism, both on the union side and from the league side that, It's going to go, it's going to be higher. Maybe it's going to be 185. I mean, I think there's some people out there crossing their fingers that, you know, maybe it can even like approach 190 as, as the league is looking at, um, looking at these new TV deals that are getting close to completion and what 2021 revenues, um, and 2022 revenues are going to be that they might, might be more comfortable spreading out the losses, um, from 2020 further, you know, that they could accept, um, you know, that they could raise the cap a little bit now, which would be great news for these teams, especially teams like, you know, the Saints or the Falcons or the Steelers that are really, really crutched for for salary cap space right now. But, you know, I think, you know, when you talk to agents, when you talk to people or kind of around the league, the expectation is, is that the stars are going to be taken care of, like the, the the biggest names who are on the free agent market are are still going to get paid. We might not be seeing record setting deals across the board like we did a couple of years ago when the cap you know was making its ten million dollar jump year after year, but the the, the top tier free agents they're going to they're going to be paid. The question is what happens to maybe the second wave to more of like the NFL quote unquote middle class, the guys that you know aren't the biggest stars, the guys who you know typically might be getting those kind of Wow, he got paid that much money, kind of deals. You know, these are guys who now this year might be having to settle for, you know, a one-year deal, or, you know, if they're going to settle, you know, sign a multi-year deal, they're going to have to spread bonuses out over years. It's so it's it's that next group of players that I think are going to be most impacted. Um, And then the the other part of that is that you know teams are really working right now to get under the cap. So if you were to look at a list of Guys who are free agents today, sitting here on whatever this is, March third, that list is going to look a lot different um, on March tenth, and it's going to look a lot different even on March seventeenth because so many guys are getting released right now. So that free agent pool is changing. There's still going to be, you know, the franchise tag coming. So, you know, there's a lot that's going to happen between now and uh, I guess two weeks from now when, when free agency officially starts.
1: You guys can follow her on Twitter at Jones. Obviously, reader on The Athletic. Go check out an article that's just up this afternoon that's great on a league proposal, a rule change that I think will impact a lot of things. We don't have time to get into it, so check out the article. Lindsay, thanks so much for the time. We appreciate you, my friend.
6: Thanks, Jason.
1: All right, so you've heard what Lindsay thinks about free agency, but I think – There's one important thing that will factor into every single team and how they handle contracts coming up in just two weeks. So I'll tell you what it is next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app.
0: You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast.
1: Unprecedented times. An abundance of caution. Phrases that you've heard so much they just make you want to throw up at this point. But phrases that are going to continue, I think, to play into the offseason season of the NFL when it comes to how money is spent. Spain and Fitz on ESPN radio, the ESPN app, SiriusXM, Channel 80, Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. And look, we just talked to Lindsey Jones from The Athletic about free agency, what's upcoming, and how money could be spent. And uh, it's an important part of what you need to realize as you look at your favorite team. Understanding that teams do a great job years in advance of looking at the salary cap and anticipating issues. The salary cap was instituted in 1994. Quick history lesson for you. The salary cap increases usually year to year, and it's only decreased one time. That was in 2011. They based the increases on how much money was made by the league. It all gets profit shared, split out, and that decides what the cap is. One time. In history, it's decreased, and that was 2011, the year of the NFL lockout, something, by the way, that the league anticipated. They knew that there was the possibility of labor issues, so as they structured contracts, not only the league, but agents also structured contracts to try and stay out of the way of whatever could happen for a lockout so that they knew that they were in the right position to negotiate smart contracts moving forward. So since then, over the past seven years, the league has seen its salary cap per club increase by at least – $10 million per year, all right? So when you think about what we had last year was $198.2 million in 2020. When contracts were being structured, that means the GMs expected that we'd be looking at about 208, maybe $210 million next year as the cap. Now, what do we find out instead? We find out with no notice, with no working understanding of what's to come and with no anticipation. Because remember, even contracts signed a year ago right now had no idea that this was gonna be the lasting effect of COVID-19. We see a salary cap drop. Now, you'll hear a lot of people say, well, yeah, it's dropped to $180 million. That's a $18 million drop from last year. No, it's a $28 million drop from what was anticipated. A $30 million drop in money that's available to spend is absolutely awful for teams as they try and figure out how to move forward. That's why it's important to remember going into what we're going to see this year with free agency because there's no easy solution to that. As Lindsay alluded to, you're going to see a lot of players cut because not a lot of people were suddenly looking at it saying, okay, well, we're going to have to make up this shortfall. And a lot of teams were already up against the salary cap with teams like New Orleans well above the cap. But now all of a sudden, not only are you against it, you're against it, plus there's an extra $30 million to figure out. All of that is why I think what we're going to see in free agency is a level of uncertainty, an abundance of caution, unprecedented times sitting down at a negotiating table, it's easy right now for NFL GMs, for team presidents, for coaches and agents to say, hey, we have no idea what's going to happen this fall. I mean, uh, uh, stadiums could be filled, but a year ago right now, we were sure that they'd have that answer. A year ago right now, we didn't even know the sports world was going to be shut down. So as we sit in negotiations for free agency as a team, are you going to be comfortable spending money that may not be available because you have no idea how full your stadium will be? Hell no. And if that's the answer, then you got to be really careful about how you spend that money. And you got to be careful about the terms, which is why it also plays to the player's advantage to look at terms and say, okay, what do I want to do? Now, if you're J.J. Watt, you're nearing the end of your career. If you can take two years on a deal, you're going to take it because that makes the most sense. But usually, players that are younger in their career want longer deals. That's what you're fighting for. I think we're going to see more two-year deals than we've ever seen. Why? Because it makes sense from both sides. If you're a team, you don't want to, catch, you don't want to pinch yourself in where suddenly you have no opportunity to have any flexibility against the cap, not knowing where the cap is going to go. If you're a player... You don't want to lock yourself into a long-term deal not knowing if suddenly there's new TV rights coming up. We all have heard that, new TV contracts being negotiated. Maybe stadiums get full again and all of a sudden you've locked yourself into a five-year deal based on what you think are going to be the economics during COVID and you find out suddenly that those economics are no longer in play. There's a ton of extra money out there. That's a worst-case scenario for a player that doesn't want his contract to be quickly outdated. That's why Lindsey talked about how the big names are still going to get paid. I don't think so. I think we're going to see a much, much tighter market. I think we're going to see short-term deals all over the place with a lot of money today and a lot of money for next year because those are the only things you can sort of try and anticipate. You'll move money around right now to try and figure out what's next. But man, you can't lock yourself into five years when you have no idea what two years from now is going to look like. It doesn't make sense for the player. It doesn't make sense for the team. I think what we're going to see on the opening days of reagency agency are short deals with big bursts of money. And we're going to see a lot of teams suddenly be cautious. We're going to see a lot of big names that sit out a few days longer than we usually are used to. And all of that will impact everything moving forward for every team. Because man, you're willing to spend money on a it. Sean Watson. But are you willing to spend money on somebody else? Is Yannick Ngakwe going to suddenly break the bank for you? You're going to have to be a lot more careful. You're going to have to be a lot more cautious when you go into how you spend money. And all of this plays into the entire offseason. We're going to see Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, Jason Fitz. And that's part of why Sam Darnold will continue to come into the conversation. That's why proven entities that have known contracts that are short-term, what do you got with Sam Darnold? Do you know how much time you have on that deal? You know how much time you have to turn around. You got four, This is year four form. So you get this year, and then you get the opportunity on a fifth-year option or a franchise. You know exactly what you'd be getting into for Sam Darnold. right? You know exactly what you'd be getting into if you, if you traded for him. And if you're the Jets, you know exactly what you have if you keep him. Abundance of caution. Matt Miller, ESPN NFL draft analyst, earlier on Barton Hahn talked about why it wouldn't be a mistake for the Jets to keep Darnold.
2: I don't think that it would be a mistake. I do think that the fans would revolt. But So I look at it this. I do think Sam Darnold is fixable. Now, he may never live up to what we all thought he was going to be coming out of USC, right? That's, that's a different conversation. You have Forget those expectations. But is he fixable to where he can become a good, a playoff-caliber quarterback? I do think so. The Jets have to weigh Sam Darnold against this quarterback class, and they have to weigh the value of the number two overall pick against the value
1: of Sam Darnold. The value of the number two overall pick is an important part of it because you can say, hey, well, they could get a quarterback at a value and start their clock over for having a quarterback contract. Yes, or they could get another part of their roster additionally at a value. Remember, the Jets have a ton of money to spend, and I get it. I get that the Jets have a ton of money, but that doesn't mean they know anything about the money next year. Nobody does. So you have to look at this. Like, we look at so many things in our own personal lives. Like, I'm going to make a pros and cons list. Well, the pros list for many teams right now is who's in the building, who do we know, and what do we know about them? Not just in the sense of who they are, but in the sense of what their contract situation is going to look like. Because if you add the variable of money, if you add the variable of not understanding what your monetary situation as a team could look like in two years, that's another variable that could make you more cautious in everything you do this offseason, whether it's the draft or whether it's free agency. Caution. How you get your team to be better but you do it in a way that doesn't mortgage your future when you don't know what your future could look like is everything. Thanks for listening to Spain and Fitz. Freddie and Fitz Simmons coming up next. Sarah Spain going to join them and Michael Jordan. Check it out. That's next. Thanks for hanging out with
0: us. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN radio and on the ESPN app.